I didn't see it coming at all. Like I did, I thought that Trump was a joke when he came down that escalator. I thought the whole thing was a farce. Welcome to Brian Derrick, joining us on this episode of The Warning Podcast. We're gonna have a discussion about Gen Z, about the millennials, and about the future of American politics from the perspective of somebody who's 30 years old, highly engaged, and is an entrepreneur in the political space trying to help you find the candidates that matter most to you, to the moment, who can win and affect change. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited to be here. And just to put a pin in this for the listeners, you're a little guy at this juncture, right? You're you're 10 years old in 2003, coming of age, consciousness. This is the defining event. So where do you get the political spark from? Where Where are you? Like, what's going on? What grade are you in? Is it a teacher? Is it a book? Is it an event? What what kind of pulls you into my my interest is in how the society is organized, how it runs itself, how power is distributed within it. When when does that kind of hmm I like this spark in you? That actually came much later for me. I think I had a natural curiosity for it. Um but it wasn't until college that I I attended Ohio State, the Ohio State University, um, and I went to school there for the hard sciences. I was like a microbiology major, and I, I wanted to go to med school. That was my plan, and I loved it, and I still love science. But I think that it was at university um, and what was happening in the country at the time that really opened my eyes to the power of organizing, of um, civic engagement, and the ability that I felt like I had to bring people into the fold and um, build sort of relationships and, and people-powered movements. I got really involved with a few student organizations, including my dance marathon, just like a 24-hour fundraiser dance-a-thon. Um, and we raised over a million dollars in a year for Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. And that made me feel so empowered. I was like, wow, I really can make a difference in these kids and families' lives who are going through this um, really tumultuous thing as, as their kids are diagnosed with cancer. And that opened my eyes to a whole different kind of impact. And so I, I actually pivoted from wanting to I don't know, I, you're young and you're idealistic, like to be the one to cure cancer, <laughs> to instead um, work on the systems that would deliver like the the cure itself for the the healthcare and the um, mm -hmm. and the system that would support the people who needed that that kind of help. And so it was it was at Ohio State that I pivoted into um, public affairs with a focus on civic engagement and nonprofit management. And then I went on to work in the nonprofit space and didn't start working full-time in politics until after Donald Trump was elected. And talk about that Trump race. Donald Trump is, is, is the candidate 
um, that all of a sudden is the most famous person in the race. He's come down the escalator at Trump Tower. When When is the moment that he has your full attention? Is it at that moment? Is it later? Is it a joke at first? Is it a growing awareness? Is it holy shit at some point on the space-time continuum a year later as he's standing like a political colossus? Talk about yeah. Donald Trump's entry and then how it how it pulls you in um it shapes what what it is you're doing. I will be fully transparent and say I didn't see it coming at all. Like I did. I thought that Trump was a joke when he came down that escalator. I thought the whole thing was a farce, really. Um, and it wasn't until the primaries started, I think, that I started to believe it was possible. I don't want to just for the just for the many warning viewers um, who would not have done well as microbiology students and and future future doctors. I just because I think this is important. You're so it's 2024. It's two. So we're nice. So you're 20, you're 21. Mm -hmm. Right. So you're 21 when he comes down the down the escalator. Okay. And your assessment at, at 21, right? You're you're a junior, senior in college. Yeah, my, my assessment was no way. My assessment was like, there's no way this is possible. I just don't see um enough people buying into this vision of what America is, what America should be, that this can have legs, that he can really go the distance. Um, and I still believed that for the most part on election day in 2016 as well. I mean, I was involved. I, again, I wasn't working full-time at the time I was working for Lambda Legal, an LGBT civil rights organization. And I was deeply involved in the social justice space, but not as heavily in politics. And I woke up on November 7th, um, like a lot of America in shock. Um, and that was something that inspired a lot of changes in me. Let me ask you a question at that at that moment in time. Um, you are feeling what towards President Obama, right? At the end of his eight years at 21, um, I suspect it's not hostility at all, um, soft admiration. And I don't want to put, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you know, he's at the, yeah, he's at the end of his second term. Are you still inspired by him? Or are you like, you know, this is the, the president of my, I'm turning into an adult. Like, how do you feel about him? How do you feel about Hillary Clinton? Are you, uh, hyper part, you know, if someone says something bad about Hillary Clinton, are you going to be triggered by it, upset by it, right? You know, at a social function, at a family function, just kind of like put yourself on a, on a, on a scale of, of, of kind of engagement with the dominant figures in the democratic party in that year. Sure. Um, I was in high school when Obama 
won in 08 when when he ran and i was so enthusiastic i had a big poster of him on my wall in 2008 and i was very inspired by him and i think like a lot of young people who came in to like this huge moment for america electing the first black president like it felt like we felt invincible it felt like the times were changing um and part of that was dampened by just pure partisan gridlock and like knuckle brawling in dc that obama went through from 08 to 16 mitch mcconnell having a big um role in that and i think that that softened some of the enthusiasm so when he was leaving office i definitely was a fan definitely supported him um but had maybe felt a little bit um, disillusioned with the system in a way that I hadn't like four or eight years prior. I think that Hillary Clinton is fantastic. I think she would have been a great president. I think you'll have a hard time triggering me about any subject. <laughs> like I'm always um, really open to different perspectives. My own family is split politically. I have uh, dinner with, with people who are two-time Trump supporters on a regular basis. Um, and so I do my best to understand different people's perspective. Um, I supported Hillary. I organized for her, but was somebody who felt like, oh, I, I could have done more, definitely. Um, and then in, in 2020, a handful of candidates that I liked. Um, Biden was not at the top of my list. I admit that freely, but I got fully on board when it was time to. Um, and I'm always pushing for usually like the most progressive person who can win a specific race. Like that's, that's my general philosophy. Uh, and I'm very pragmatic. So I'm always trying to get someone to nail down what they're willing to do or able to do to make concrete change rather than just reflect my values back to me. So let's talk about that for a minute. That's in that's an interesting place. You know, I, I've spent a lot of my career in um, campaign politics, and I've I've talked about it as a constant um, confrontation, if you will, between idealism and cynicism, mm -hmm. right? Pragmatism in national politics right, is the soft gateway, right, to cynicism, right? So I want to ask you, right, about uh, your company, your um, vision for it, to explain what you do. But for example, um, gay marriage, and you talked about your involvement on this as an issue. I was involved in the issue um, with these um, ACLU as one of the strategists in the marriage equality campaigns. Came out in favor of of marriage equality in a in a speech in um, in two thousand and nine. You know, I I you know I tell my kids right that. There, I mean, there were no gay people like growing up in North Plainfield, New Jersey. It would have been like, you, know, you look back, it's like, the, oh, that's Uncle Anthony and his friend. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? You know, totally. I remember like, oh, Uncle Anthony is right. It just wasn't. And I just look at this issue as singular, right? In that 
in a very fast period of time, gay marriage became a consensus view in the country, which from the place that I came into the story at and from the place I came into the story at is astonishing to me, mm -hmm. right? So, so you look at that, right? And it fills you with hope, right? On, on all manner of other intractable issues. So the one question before you explain what is you do, how do you account for in that balance between pragmatism and righteous necessity. So, for example, Marjorie Taylor Greene may be a person on paper who looks invincible, but she needs to be challenged, right? She needs to be challenged in every election with resources, right, until, you know, as it says in scripture, the walls come tumbling down. Um, and they will, right, at, at some point. So I... Talk about pragmatism, right? Talk about efficiency in politics. Talk about how you see this now as a 30-year-old, an activist who looks at the system and says, well, I see an opportunity for disruption here, the, the capacity to aggregate individuals into a mightier force, directly connecting them to the most important candidates, not just in congressional races, but in house races, mayoral races, races up and down the ballot in the 94,000 elected jurisdictions across the United States. We'll talk about that, too, because, you know, a lot of people, I think, fret about the looming dictatorship, right, with a lot of worry, a lot of hyperbole. I'm one of them, too. But we have we have 94,000 elected governments in the United States, and they all at least have three lawyers with them, right? Like even the small ones. Yes. So. That's very true. Um, and I, I love the way that you, you put that. For me and for Oath, which we can get into, um, I think it is about optimizing for and prioritizing outcomes over process. And I think that for a lot of people, especially young people, in the year 2024, they are more concerned with how they fight, the way that they fight, how they're perceived to be fighting versus whether or not they win. And for me, all I care about is that W. Like you, the way that politics works. Slow that down. Go inside yeah. with that. Explain that. Well, uh, are you talking about? So I, I spent a couple of weeks ago. I was I spent a couple hours with one of the the very top elected Democratic leaders in the in the country, and the point that that person made was their frustration on fidelity to slogans to a speech code that you didn't say defund the police um and therefore you're not pure and therefore 
Is that what you mean by that? that that's exactly what I mean. And okay. to put it another way, like we're talking a lot about virtue signaling okay. is that people really want their electeds or their leaders or people in their movement to say that they agree with them and that they are right on the issue that that is at hand more than they want to achieve mutual progress on that issue, especially if that progress is not comprehensive. It does, does not include every imaginable um, thing or every imaginable community. And so I feel like what's needed more often is someone who's willing to say, I'm not going to get credit for this, or this is this might make me look bad, or I'm not going to be able to message this the way that you want, but I will vote that way. But I will stand alongside of you. I will support. I will donate. I will whatever that looks like, because we both want the same thing in the end. We both want the same outcome. And let's focus more on that. Um, I'm I'm gay, and I sometimes give presentations, um, public public talks to people about what's happening in terms of anti-LGBT legislation around the country. And I gave a long presentation pretty recently about all the anti-trans legislation going on and talked for like 15 or 20 minutes presented. And I had someone ask at the end, like, why did you say LGBTQ and not LGBTQ plus? Like, don't you feel like you're you're leaving people out? And I was I I wanted to pull my hair out and say like that's what you took away from that, right? Like I'm talking about 500 anti anti LGBT bills that are happening, and and like we we just want to talk about the the plus sign, um, and so I get it, and I get wanting wanting to like push for progress in every way that we can, but that how shouldn't do you, come. How do you? So how do you answer that? Oh, I said, oh, I, I mean, I'm I'm pretty blunt about it. I'm like, next, like, like, is that the most important thing for us to be spending our time on right now was like the, the thrust of of my response to that is like, let's not let's not debate something that we both agree on. Like, why are we looking for reasons to to disagree instead of you and I are both aligned on the problem that these bills represent, the harm that they cause, the path to fighting against them. Let's let's take a step in the right direction instead of debating um, how how to go backwards. Um, and so I, I find that kind of politicking and those sorts of politics frustrating. Um, and when I talk about being pragmatic, those are the kinds of things that I like to sidestep in favor of what outcomes are we are we trying to achieve? In in my view, all political activism has two goals. One is to achieve your goal, whether that is to stop something from happening or to affect change via a law or a new um, a policy. If you cannot do that, you're, you're fighting and you don't have the votes, you cannot block the bill, you cannot get it passed. Then the second task at hand is how do we grow the coalition? How do we fight towards goal number one in a way that we grow the number of people who are on our side so that the next time we have that fight, we can win and we have the votes that we need. And so to me, that is how we approach these issues in a more strategic way. Um, and it's less about the credit, the points, the virtue signaling, um, and it's more about outcomes.
when, when you think though about outcomes, do you do you recognize, and maybe more importantly, do you think that most people your age recognize that that contestation, right, of ideas and issues is taking place within the framework of a system that demands respect for a couple of different fairly inflexible notions right at this at this moment in time right first off right we're we're all created equal endowed by a whatever the fuck you want to call it right certain mm -hmm. inalienable rights right life liberty and the pursuit of happiness gay straight black white asian hispanic right doesn't doesn't matter right we we're we're, we're at that place right everybody 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 gets to everybody gets to vote there's a rule of law right that holds we don't have a king we don't have an emperor right that we grant political leaders temporary power for limited periods periods of time with with very very substantial constraints right around the exercise of that of that of that power right you know not not flexible things do you do you feel like anyone gets this right i got at a core level right do you got to be able right to to sit in a room right in in part of your coalition and understand that 20 percent of the people in any given room who agree with you on 80 percent of the issues right disagree with you 20 percent of the time or somebody who may be the linchpin for a really uh, profoundly important step forward right from the from the vast middle from the from the vast center may disagree with you 49 percent of the time and that's and that's okay, right? That's that's the way the ball bounces in life. We're not we're not talking about immutable issues of civil rights of human rights, right? We're talking about right uh, on spending, on taxation, on you know should we have twelve sub submarines or fourteen? Um, right. type of type of questions. Do do people get that? I think far fewer people get that and uh, embody that now than did. 10 years ago or 10 years why? before that. Why Why do you think that is? One reason I would say is algorithms that govern how we think in a way that we don't often acknowledge. But for, again, I'll, I'll speak for like, for not for all young people, but on if you are a young person today, you spend up to eight hours of your day every day on social media, mostly consuming video content. And that has created an entirely new, massive part of the economy that didn't exist 10 years ago. And for, I mean, look at the number of young people who want to be content creators or influencers. It's huge, like majorities, majorities of young people saying that they would do that if it was an option available to them. And the incentive structure in those spaces, particularly when it comes to political communications, any kind of social commentary, is to have something new and different to say. And 
to drive a reaction that is anger, fear, outrage, because that is what algorithms optimize for. And so that might feel, feel disconnected, but when you have so many young people spending so much time consuming content that is being driven by that incentive system, they are really strongly steered away from sort of like the common sense, common ground sort of goals and more and more to the outsides where the people that they're following and um, getting information from and, and perspective from are looking to have the most extreme take on, on a topic. Um, that makes people much less willing to sit down next to someone that they that they don't agree with um, because they have been trained to sort of like that that outrage reaction is Pavlovian. Like it is really easy. Um, I mean, you asked me the question earlier as, as a joke, like about being triggered by like someone um, uh, critiquing Hillary Clinton. And I think that actually cuts right to it, right? Is that like, are people now so easily turned off by the potential benefits of working together because you don't share every imaginable opinion that they have, um, that it's blocking the ability to, to work together. And I, I think that we're moving towards a place that the answer for a lot of people is yes. Um, and that's, especially online, something that I try to actively work against. I've been vocal in my um, qualified support of Joe Manchin. People, he's like a good example of this, right? People hate Joe Manchin. Democrats in particular hate Joe Manchin. We're furious at him for the bills that he blocked in uh, 2021 uh, in particular. And uh, as, as Biden, the Biden administration uh, took over. And my perspective was very much not what is he blocking you from achieving, but what are we going to get past because we have Joe Manchin's seat in the Senate? And the answer was a lot. It was the infrastructure bill and uh, Inflation Reduction Act, climate legislation, the Respect for Marriage Act, like the list goes on and the PACT Act, the list goes on. Um, we wouldn't have had any of those things if it were not for Manchin, if it were not for, I mean, cinema is, is her own story, but um, we should have more of these people, even if they don't agree with us on everything, if we, even if we don't get everything that we want, we have some of it exclusively because he was there. Um, and he did ultimately get across the finish line. He's leaving, we're losing that seat, and we'll see if those people are happier with probably without the Senate majority in 2025. I was, um, my daughter is 20. And so she's my oldest and she's a sophomore in college. And um, TikTok, right what's on her feed it's brutal yeah towards biden yep brutal 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 um yeah how do you relate to the 30 and under crowd i mean this is a communication business 
right? And I make that point, right? It's like I'm a Jet fan. Um, they they won their last Super Bowl before I was born, right? I was born in 70, right? But you know, I was like, how would Joe Namath have done in this past Super Bowl? Like he wouldn't have done great. Mm-hmm. Right? He would have would have gotten rolled over, can't move. And um, you know, it's a communications business. Right. You watch this. You watch this every day. I um I thought it would this was a huge mistake. And I, I like Gavin Newsom. Um, I, you know, I consider him a friend. When he goes out and he says, no, no. He's 82. This is the asset. Right. This is this is the wisest man in the land. Right. Get on get on board with that. Right. All I can think about is in the Bush campaign in 04, right, um, is that the campaign being oriented around a fight over whether George Bush is a genius or not. Right. Which would not have been which would not have been a successful fight. Right. And so I feel like when I listen to him talk Mm -hmm. about it this way, he's antagonizing me. Right. Because I'm not happy with the choice Mm -hmm. at all. Yet, the choice is as crystal clear as any any choice can possibly possibly be. And I think a big element in this electorate is not going to be this like bullshitted happy voter. It's going to be the grumpy voter, yep. right? Where you where you where you're going to have to. This is going to be hard because the the DNC in the white house is 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 they're they're fucking miles from this right now right which is the concept of right not happy with your decision to do this again which by the way is where 86 percent of the country is right this idea that we don't agree on anything like 86 (laughs) percent of us right the maga people the bot like everybody agrees on this right but this is this is the choice right that that lays out before us and it's going to happen but i but I think you're gonna have to find a way to reach people who are really indifferent about the importance of the choice in a way that doesn't involve beating them over the head, mm-hmm. right? About the thing that core they don't believe, right? Yeah. Which is it's a great choice and you should be happy about it, right? Do you do you have a thought on that? How you engage like younger, younger people on it? Because it is. I get the clips from my from my and they're not. She's going to vote for him. She will vote right for for President Biden, not because I'm making her right. I mean, under her own her own volition for a lot of <laughs> for a lot of reasons. But when it comes to the brutality of the mocking in the culture, none of this makes it on to MSNBC ever. And I think a lot of people that are in the kind of democracy coalition are blind utterly right to what he is subjected to in a moment to moment basis. It's brutal. I absolutely agree. And I think that you're, you're putting it better, but that's what I'm, I'm I'm trying to drive at with when I talk about the incentive structure online is that I, I don't doubt that the people sharing that kind of content believe it. I think that they do, but we also have to acknowledge that they are strongly incentivized to create more and more and more of it when it performs well. I start every conversation about Joe Biden with, I wish I wasn't Joe. 
like this year. I'm very open with that. I talk on Instagram a lot about the presidential and many other elections. And I'm very open and say, like, if I had the power to pick, Joe Biden would not be on my top 10 list. Like, he just who, wouldn't. Who do you like when you look at it, the future of the party? Like, who who kind of, you know, it, it doesn't even have to be someone at the governor or Senate level, someone you think that's going to be there in, in six to eight years. It, it is, though, for me, it's Big Gretch. Big, uh, Gretchen Whitmer, governor of Michigan, I think would be an amazing choice. I think that what she has accomplished there, the issues that she prioritized and was able to pass with uh, a single year of a cooperative legislature there, incredible. Um, I think there are other options that would be compelling to me, potentially like Roy Cooper, uh, governor of North Carolina, I think is interesting. Um of course, you said Newsom. People talk about J.B. Pritzker. Jared Polis, I think, is um, a really interesting option. Um, so I, I do think that there's a bench. And so when people in Biden world say, like, Biden's the only one who can beat Trump, I think that that is a, not true. And I think they know that that's not true. But this is the situation that we're in. And we're in a situation where we have a choice, as, as you said. And I think that framing it any other way is a is a mistake like it's tone deaf um and i do know influencers and content creators out there who are like really trying to be biden cheerleaders um which i get but i think that it's a lot more effective to have a real conversation and say this is what i wish was was true I, i'm with you i'm riding shotgun on on that opinion um i i don't think that uh, it's our our best option in the country. And I think that of the two outcomes that will happen, I think that this is the better outcome. If, if Biden if Biden loses this election, have you thought about that? Absolutely. I think about it every day. Um, do you feel personally vulnerable? Yeah, yes, yes, absolutely. Um, for a couple reasons. I think that some of the more immediate policy changes are less likely to damage me personally. Things like a national abortion ban, which I think would happen in a second Trump administration. Um, really aggressive anti-immigrant policies, unlikely to impact me as an individual person. Um, him replacing two Supreme Court justices for another um, like 40 years potentially will absolutely impact me personally. Well, it and... depends which ones, right? Yes. Well, actually, actually, I, I would say no. I think that our, our next president will likely appoint at least one Supreme Court justice. We don't know that for sure, but Clarence Thomas could definitely step down in the next five years. And even if Trump, my, my point is, it's not an attrition, right? It's not a worsening of the position. It would be, it would be locking this into place for much, much longer. We have the, we have the potential that we could swing the Supreme Court back to five four in the next eight, seven, eight, seven, eight years. Like that, that's definitely on the table, right? If we win in key elections, um, but it's also the potential to go seven two. Um, or or to lock in six three for fifty years. Like that's possible. If 
if the president loses and Trump is president for four years, then then how do you look at the future of the party as somebody who's an activist, but not part of its bureaucratic hierarchy in Washington, D.C.? Are you see, I mean, to me, right, it, 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 it takes out two candidates, right, that no doubt within a week, someone would be dumb enough to go out and say, no, it's their turn, right, which would be mm. Newsom and Harris, right? It would be like the bug zapper, right, in the commercials, right? Their political careers are over in a defeat. Um, you know, he would have, Gavin would have gone all in on a proposition that you know, he oversold from a credibility perspective. But what what comes next, right a after that? Are you are you open to an independent candidacy that can beat back an extremist an extremist movement? Does the does the does it change your view of the Democratic Party institutionally? I mean, I think one of the most under discussed issues in the country is if you have two political parties. And one of the two political parties is losing, right, to the deranged, conspiracy-driven party and open coalition with Nazis, right, that time to time to pause and think. Yeah. I think that we're due for some really serious transformation, whether or not Trump wins, honestly. I think that young people are disillusioned with more than just the choice of Biden or Trump. And we're kind of in a situation where whether you're on the left or the right, the biggest frustration for a lot of people is that it feels like nothing changes. It feels like we get big promises, that we push and win big elections the longer time frame, not just the last four years, but longer time frame. And it feels like nothing changes as a result. And people are angry about that. And I think that what we need to change the system that makes that feeling so ubiquitous are bigger structural changes that aren't going to be solved by an independent candidate or an independent run, but by a longer term, more like populist demand for democracy reform. Like like people are, and I don't think that includes all of it, but I think that people are pissed that the Supreme Court are partisans in robes. I think that people are over the electoral college and the way that we are picking our president. I think that people are frustrated um, by the intransigence and the gridlock of um, that's really being driven by closed primary systems um, and gerrymandering that push the parties further and further to the extremes. Like people are frustrated with the system itself, not delivering the ability, even the option to make progress on the things that they care about. And so that's what I think is like, we're due for no matter who wins in 24, of course, we still have to have a democracy for that to happen. And there, I'm sure um, you you share some of my views there about like what the risks are um, uh, to our democracy. But that is what is really animating me as I think about like the 2030s and just like longer term, like what do millennial Gen Z, this huge voting block want to see 
And it's like, they want to see a system that works better. Even if we disagree on what that system should deliver, they want to see it operate. Do you, does anybody your age who's invested in politics in the way that you are, right? That is, that is engaged in it, highly knowledgeable, communicating about it. Is anybody sitting around talking about the debt through a mm. prison? Holy shit. That the debt service, as interest rates rise, which was always an inevitability, um, now is headed towards being the largest expenditure in the in the federal budget, right? Which is, and this has always been viewed, right? Until until literally the last 40 years. Um and and arguably the last 24, right? Because I, I think it's unfair to pin it on Bill Clinton, who actually balanced the budget, right? Right. right. Um but people always understood this, right? From from George Washington all the way through. Right. And until we get into the 21st century, this is a moral issue. Right. This is this is stealing. Right. From people who aren't born yet and restricting opportunities on investment, which I think at the core. Right. Is part of what so many people are pissed off about. Right. Um, did, does anyone ever talk about that as an issue? Short answer, I'll say is is no. Sadly, I, I really don't think that very many young people are motivated by the debt as um, an issue that they should vote on or that personally affects them. Um, I do think a lot of them have a surprisingly high competency and understanding of how the federal government works. But because of where that information is coming from, I, I still think it's like a, quite a cynical understanding of, of all of that. And this doesn't I think register with them in the top five threats um, that they hear about on a daily basis when we're talking about things like book bans and abortion bans and the end of democracy and dictatorships. And I think it's hard to to make the case to someone who's hearing that narrative to be like, the national debt is really where you need to put your focus. And I'm not saying it's not important, but I think it's a hard sell on um, social media platforms where people are consuming their news and forming their opinions. Last thing I want to ask you is and then I want to ask you to just talk about your company and what it does and where people can find it to close out. But what do you think, right, as we sit here right now, when you look at what is the thing you have the greatest fear about when you look out into the to, to the future? What do you think the great threat facing the facing the nation is? right now that you're that you're most worried about we've hit on it here but i will say apathy i think that we do have we have not put forth a workable solution to the growing disengagement from our political system that allows something like a authoritarian figure to um commandeer our, our democracy. That is only possible 
when people become so cynical and so apathetic that they don't step up to to prevent it um or even worse like embrace it because it feels like change and it feels like uh, a solution to to what they see as the problem um which we're also seeing and so that is what i spend a tremendous amount of my time focused on is trying to empower people trying to give people um the ability to cultivate hope in a time and on platforms that are designed to kill that hope um and look i i think telling people where to look for it and how to uh, motivate themselves to stay engaged um, when it's easier to tune out tell us about the company i think so, this is really interesting concept and idea and so lay it out where people can enter, find it, engage with it, whole deal. Yeah, we founded Oath, like Oath of Office, um, back in 2022, just a, as, a, as a side project, me and my uh, longtime friend, Taylor. And the goal was to help people find the, the elections, particularly state and local elections that would be most impactful on the issues they cared about. We built it ourselves, popsicle sticks and glue in 2022. Um, and essentially people could select reproductive rights or Arizona or elect more women, like whatever their interest was that they wanted to optimize for. And we did the research to surface candidates that would be most instrumental in achieving that goal. We had so much success. We had 10,000 people use the platform. It's free to use at oath.vote. 10,000 people used it in five months, gave over $2 million to these candidates um, that we decided to quit our jobs and work on this full time and provide people a tool to um, really maximize their impact in the elections that mattered most, especially below the presidency. And so if you want to get involved and you don't know where to start, Oath is a great tool to do that. Whether you have $5 to give or you have $50,000 to give, like we work with um, everyone from grassroots donors to Sam Altman. And uh, you can get started at oath.vote. Um, and we don't take a cut through the, of uh, any donations to the platform. We aren't paid by candidates or parties. Um, we are just here as a resource for activists and donors. And I had a really important point. Um, this is not a grift. Um, they are not sucking uh, your donation into the Hoover system of the Trump industrial complex. Right. Uh, this is a vessel by which your donations uh, can reach the places that you uh, want to get them to, to achieve the outcomes that you care about. And so um, I really encourage you to check out Oath. Uh, I appreciate Brian Derrick with us today. A great conversation. And as everybody can tell, a very, very smart guy. Uh, thank you so much for your time and good luck to you out there. Uh, hang tough and keep fighting on. Thank you for listening to my political commentary. If you like what you heard today, please also consider subscribing to The Warning, daily newsletter on Substack.